This episode of the 343 podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics is offering you an additional 10% discount because they know that you are serious about high-quality soccer products if you are listening to this show. Training balls from Bounce Athletics can be customized with your logo and your color scheme and will only cost you about $15 to $20 per ball. And if you compare similar textured training balls from Nike, Adidas, or Select, those would be in the $50 to $60 range. Now, I've personally tested the balls from Bounce Athletics. They feel great. They look great. They roll great. They hold air, which is super important. They are legit, and I highly recommend them. To top everything off, Bounce Athletics will send you complimentary mock-ups of what your balls will look like with your logo on them. Just email your logo to info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. And remember to mention 343 so you get that additional 10% discount when you place your order. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Simon Murphy is the founder and CEO of a tech startup called RefLive. RefLive's referee management system is an online management dashboard and referee smartphone app to improve performance and retention while reducing referee abuse. And that last part of the sentence is pretty important. Referee abuse is the number one reason that referees stop refereeing. A lot of us know that it's a problem, but Simon is one of the few that have decided to take this issue head on. And the reasons behind why he started Ref Live and how it's kind of morphed into what it is now are very, very fascinating stories. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Uh, during this conversation with Simon, we discuss his time playing college soccer here in the United States. I think you'll figure out where he's from when he, uh, when you hear him start talking. Uh, what led him to start a company for referees? And then he also shares a story at the very end of this interview about the day that his technology was used for the first time by a FIFA referee. And he sounded very eager and passionate to, uh, to share that story. So it was really funny. Uh, you can connect with Ref Live and Simon on Twitter, and you can also visit their blog to read interviews with top, top, top level referees from around the world. And then he also decided to interview me for some reason. Uh, that interview with uh, with myself is available on Ref Live as well. There's links to, to their Twitter and to their website and their blog. Uh, I highly recommend going to check out some of those interviews. They're really, really cool. If you like this episode of the 343 podcast with Simon, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with other coaches, parents, players, and fans, because I think that the topic or the subject matter is very, very important, especially, oh, it's just not, not now, it's always, uh, talking about referee abuse is always uh, a, a good topic. It's, uh, it's something that has existed in the game for a very, very long time, and the more we talk about it, hopefully we see a decrease in it. So please share this. Uh, you can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And if you're feeling super nice or if you really just like this episode or a couple of the episodes or all the episodes, you can give the show a five-star rating and uh, that would be amazing to me. But if you really want to support the 343 podcast, the best way to do that is by joining the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program. What you get in return is the best coaching education program that is designed by a proven practitioner. That practitioner 
is not me. And a lot of people mistake this program for, for being mine. And, and it's, it's not, I, I vouch for it because it's something that I have used and I have learned and I have experienced and it completely changed the way that I coach. And I've been a member since the 343 program launched. It has helped me learn about possession soccer and has added tremendous value to my teams. And it has also been the absolute hands down best investment that I've made when it comes to coaching education. And you guys have heard me talk before about how much coaching education I've consumed. This is the best thing that I found. The 343 membership program teaches you a proven possession based methodology, which comes directly from one of the best coaches in American soccer. It's a simple program that doesn't confuse you or bog you down with excess information or unnecessary information. It just shows you the real work and the real results. So when you sign up, you get instant access to videos of real games and real training sessions to help you learn how to coach possession soccer. You also get 24 seven online access to eBooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on-field clinics, and members only forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. You get all of that for just $295, which is an incredible deal and a fraction of the price compared to other coaching education courses that are out there. To learn more about the benefits and all the information about the course, you can visit 343coaching.com. Once again, that is 343coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. I hope that you enjoy this special episode with the founder and CEO of Ref Live, Mr. Simon Murphy. What's up? How are you? Yeah, kind of right. Did you uh, check out the game this morning? I did. I did. Um, I got nervous watching. I was watching Atletico and Juve, and I was like, "Oh, damn it! I'm gonna have to push this interview back half, half hour or more if they go to extra time." <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like that. I mean, it's uh, I, I was, chose that one as well. You know, how it's like it's always like yeah, you know, you got two to choose from. Kind of can be a bit, pretty painful, but. Even though there was a lot of goals in the other game, I don't think it would have been worthwhile after halftime. Yeah, well, here I don't know. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here, well, and and you know how it is. You you spent time here, but you know they they usually only show like one game on the national broadcast, and then the other one. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. You have to stream it online or something like that. So we, we really only got one choice today, which was uh, which was Juve and um, Juve and Atletico. But it worked out well then. Yeah, it worked out worked out okay. I'm happy the Croatian is moving into the next round, so we're at least guaranteed one of those guys, so we're all good. <laughs> sure, half of Melbourne's pretty happy too. Yeah, no, exactly, right? Um, hey, uh, I think it's funny too that I interviewed I interviewed your your old coach the other day. I interviewed Michael. Oh, uh, Coach Coach Prunty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, there no. you go. He's a smart guy. No, yeah, it was it was a good interview. It was really good. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm actually even, you know, looking forward to this conversation more than the last time I talked to you. Cause last time you were, you were the one asking me questions and, and I was left wondering like, all right, well, who the hell is this guy? So I want to, I want to, you know, learn more <laughs> about you and what you're up to and, and, you know, how your story and, and, and actually how, how, yeah, like even our stories kind of collided. Cause that's ultimately how we, how we found each other was I think through just mutual connections. So. Yeah, that sounds great. 
All right. You ready for it? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Um, give me a, give me a proper introduction. Who are you and, and what do you do? And, and maybe if you can maybe tell a little bit about your, your experience with, uh, with the American soccer landscape, that would be great. Yeah, so my name's Simon Murphy. Uh, I'm a founder and CEO of a startup company called RefLive, which basically creates officiating technology solutions, uh, mostly for football or soccer. Uh, in terms of like my like background with playing soccer and and kind of getting involved, um, I started playing in, in Australia when I was about 14 years old. Um, really fell in love with the game, and you know, kind of practiced every day and led me pretty quickly to deciding to go to college in the U.S. when I was 18 and took me to Davenport in Iowa, which is where not a lot of um, foreigners end up. Um, But it was an incredible experience and uh, introduced me to, I guess, life in the U.S. and uh, introduced me to college sports. And, you know, from there, I I definitely fell in love with with the States and, and the sports scene over there. And, it just exposed me to a whole bunch of different experiences that I that I would never would have had, and loved my time in Iowa, and have since spent time in Chicago and San Francisco, and, and kind of moved around the country, and um, yeah, it's just just been a, a, back a lot of times, you know, to visit friends and things like that. Why Why did you decide to go the college route? I think that there's a big. A, People, you probably don't realize that, like when you're playing, but there's a big distinction between, you know, having like the ability to to become a professional player, you know, at that 16 to 18 year old stage. And for me, that wasn't like a realistic option at the time. But you know, I wanted to kind of take take it as seriously as I take playing as seriously as I could, but also had a strong interest in, in academics and was a pretty good student in high school and had a lot of interest uh, in terms of studying business and things like that. So. For me, it was really just kind of the perfect combination of being able to basically train full time, but then also to be able to get like a college degree on the side, and you know, the fact that you get a scholarship to pay for, for to quite a lot of it, uh, it was really really attractive option for me. How did the American college option get thrown your way? How did you determine that that, that was where you wanted to to go, or how did you even realize that that it was an option to begin with? Yeah, well, it kind of came to me in Australia with this company called NSR, National Scouting Report, and they basically went out and found different players, you know, that 15, 16-year-old age bracket who, you know, had some sort of interest in going to college and doing something at university, but then also were, you know, good enough to kind of be recruited by a range of college teams, you know, kind of all over the country and, and at all levels. and. Uh, you know, once I kind of met met the guy running this company and and decided that you know this this was kind of like a perfect option, kind of ticked all the boxes of what I was looking to do when I finished school. I always wanted to travel as well; that was really important. Um, you know, and the fact that that the US came up, you know, it just is, was a really big opportunity and something that I kind of worked at as soon as I kind of found out that 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 was an option. When uh, when you when you finally did make it over. To the soccer hotbed of Davenport, Iowa, what were uh, <laughs> what were what were some of your immediate thoughts, and and, and maybe not necessarily about like uh, just Davenport in general, but in regards to soccer, like you, you're coming from a foreign country, you're coming here to play college soccer. 
obviously there's going to be some things that are the same and some things that are different, but what were some of your initial reactions to, you know, being on the field with, with these players? Uh, I mean, I mean, it, it was wild, honestly, it was, it was such a culture shock. So like I, I'd never even, like I'm from like a regional city where I like in, in Australia, kind of about an hour away from Melbourne and I'd never even been on a flight before I went over. So like my first flight was from like, Melbourne to like LAX so you just imagine like this little scared country kid um you know heading over to like a a new country not knowing anyone Um, I guess the the big benefit that everyone spoke English that that probably helped that would have been another (laughs) difficult barrier but the first thing I remember in terms of meeting like the coach and my teammates and everything was really just that the the language of of the game is really really vastly different like in Australia, we're definitely much more influenced by, you know, like the English way of talking and just in terms of like just little things like you talk about like penalties, like PK or or scoring a goal in the top corner is like up a 90, like all these weird things that I just had no kind of concept of. Uh, you know, that that was probably the, the biggest thing at the start. Like it just, you just didn't really, you kind of had to spend a few weeks just getting to understand like the the lingo of how everyone spoke over here and in terms of like the actual playing style what i really couldn't couldn't believe was how physically fit and fast everyone was like it was every team basically especially the american players which is like a team of athletes you know whereas a lot of a lot of in australia was probably more technical and and guys just weren't in anywhere near as good a shape as what they were you know at at that college level your comment about the language is interesting to me and probably mostly because I still feel like we are heavily influenced by, by English football and, and some of the people that have you know been around the game, especially in California, you know, the top coaches and, and some of the top directors are, are for the most part, English guys. Um, but I, I, I'm curious before leaving Australia, did you know that English football had that big of an influence on Australian culture or is that something that you that you came to learn later like after visiting other places you said you hadn't been on a plane before so that like I'm wondering if you if you knew like what football was like outside of Australia I mean I had a rough idea so even though the like the time difference is quite poor for like English Premier League games a lot of them are around 2 a.m on a like an early Sunday morning so like a Saturday night that's really the main kind of league that everyone follows here. We've got our own domestic competition, which is getting pretty, which is getting stronger. But I think it's kind of going through the same kind of growing pains that the MLS is going through. But it was, it was, it was back in that, that time when, like, this is what two thousand eight when I moved over. So social media was really in its infancy, and I think that the way that you, you know you just kind of didn't have that understanding of what is going on around the world like you do now. And I think that that's you know coming going back to the US now, it's the the soccer landscape has changed a lot. I think it's gotten um, a lot more legitimate, kind of a lot more mainstream. You know, particularly in California, you know, you can just see that the the there's, there's real like through and through football people now in the US, whereas it always kind of felt like it was you know like a, a side interest as opposed to what the you know the big few sports there are. What about other other cultures that have had an influence on the way that you played 
you played soccer growing up or the way that you were coached growing up, did you ever notice that there were there were other cultures besides the English culture that were influencing the way things were in Australia? Oh, definitely. I mean, Australia is, and particularly Melbourne, where you know we would play like most of our competition games. There's just a, it's. I think it's one of the most diverse kind of major cities in the world. So, you know, you've got teams that their ethnicity is you know based upon being immigrants from Croatia, um, Serbia, Macedonia, Greece, and it's just you know you, even though they're not vastly different styles. Uh, it just it really creates this interesting atmosphere of um, and also, there's also a big Dutch influence as well, particularly uh, where I'm from in Ballarat, and so it just creates like a really interesting um, situation. I think in terms of the way that people follow follow their teams, traditionally the way that the the game's been played, I, I think that the influences kind of come from everywhere. But you know, it's it's loosely based on I would say like English principles of playing. Um, which kind of seems like the U.S. is a bit like that as well. Yeah, we kind of have at the moment we're I guess going through a transition phase, and and right now the the hot item is is Dutch education or the Dutch way, and for whatever reason that's what the American higher ups have um, have decided on, and that's what they're trying to feed everybody else through their coaching education courses and whatnot, and. And it's it's kind of it's interesting to watch people's reaction to it. People that are just finding the game for the first time, or are still in, in kind of like their learning phase, are really open to you know this new way of of teaching the game. And then you have other people that have been around for quite a while, and it's like, well, why are we doing this Dutch stuff? Like the you know the Dutch are not necessarily the powerhouse that they used to be, and why why are we learning you know this way? But for whatever reason, the the Dutch have just cemented themselves in. Uh, in American soccer um, positions of power at the moment, it's really weird. I don't, I don't, I don't know how that happens. So, I, I agree. I think it's such a strange thing, you know. It's and it's 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 kind of like you look at the differences between like a, a big company and a startup in terms of trying trying to like change the way that things are done. Like it's incredibly difficult to make a change at the top of a sports governing body in terms of the way that, you know, you want the teams to be coached and you want to bring in, like, a certain philosophy, that's not something that can, like, A, be taught overnight and then B, you know, if you feel like you're going the wrong direction, be changed overnight. And, you know, it's just one of those big challenges where is it something, you know, you know there's, there's just so many different, like, I guess, opportunity costs of going in any different direction and then, you know, you might not see either the benefits or benefits, you know, both negative and positive, Within you know you know two or three World Cup cycles away, so it's a, it's an incredibly incredibly difficult thing to manage. And you know you look at places like Germany, who have been perennially probably the like level of excellence. Then in the most recent World Cup, they're kind of bombing out in the group stages. You know, it's like how is there even a right and wrong way? Is it so competitive at the top that you know you you need a lot of luck and you need a good draw to even make a, a bit of a run in in like a world tournament? Yeah, and, and just recently, people have started posting, uh, you know, the the names of players that have been part of youth uh, championship winners. So, like, you know, the U seventeen World Cups, U U twenty World Cups, and things like that. And and it's kind of amazing that not very many players from those teams have transitioned to becoming big stars 
on a global scale. So like, you know, a U17 World Cup winner isn't necessarily going to be part of a World Cup winning roster. Um, I'm trying to think of the teams that have won it. Uh, the example that I saw the other day, but it was just it, it was just quite shocking to see like yeah the, the difference in the cycles and and what takes place and and it's all you know it, it, it's very very hard to predict those types of things and and I think the people that you know like you said kind of do it best you know the perennial winners like Germany Brazil France you know places like that like those those are people that that you should definitely be keeping an eye on. And yeah, I, I don't, I don't know where I was going with that, but that was my thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's really tough to win world tournaments. I think exactly. maybe that's what I was going for. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to go back to your, your journey through, through Davenport. And so you, you got here, you were, um, like you mentioned a little bit, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit of a, of an adjustment to the physicality and the fitness, you know, it sounds like you, you were kind of thrown, thrown off guard by the athleticism of some of the American players. Um, how, how long did it take you to, to settle in or did you, did, did you settle in at any point and, and what was the, what was the experience like once, uh, once you did or didn't, sorry. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably, it definitely took longer than I thought. And I think like anyone who has kind of ever moved away from home at a young age, like it's really hard to kind of anticipate what you're going to, what it's going to feel like, you know, moving to the other side of the world, um, both in like terms of playing soccer and, and, you know, just generally, you know, just lifestyle adjustments. Uh, that, so that first like practice week or, or hell week, the, the older guys would call it as like basically it's just 10 days of, um, two a days and they're like both sessions are just incredibly challenging you know like not many people in australia would kind of ever train that hard into just in terms of like a, a volume level um so you know two or three days in like my body was just kind of breaking down because it was just a ridiculous amount of ridiculously high workload and just no time to kind of rest and you know that was just it was like a crazy hot humid like summer and i just kind of come from winter like it's just a combination of factors and then, you know, on top of everything else, you're trying to get used to this new style to a whole group of new teammates. Um, and, you, you know, in your head, you know, when you're coming, you're moving overseas to play, you know, you, you fancy yourself as trying to, you know, ideally coming in to be kind of one of the top players and, you know, you get over and it's, it's, it's just, it's a highly competitive environment. People aren't just, you know, keeping a spot open for you. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to play, you know, and, kind of it was hard for me to realize you know there's like you got your freshmen sophomore junior seniors like you know people just don't expect freshmen um if we had a really older older team you know to to even like want to start so you know it was it was a it was a big battle that first in i didn't start by the time the season rolled around like i didn't start that first couple of games but you know was able to kind of really put my head down and, and kind of um, get to work and put all, put all of the homesickness and stuff aside after a few weeks and just sort of say to myself, look, I'll, I'll give it a semester. Um, you know, if I don't like it, then, you know, can always go home. Um, but, you know, I just really wanted to stick it out for, for a semester and see how it went and, um, you know, started to make friends and, you know, it, it all ended up working out. And, you know, I think by the third or fourth game, I was, I was one of the starters and we had a great season. So, you know, really, really happy with, with how things eventually went that, that first year. It's kind of a crazy phenomenon. And I, and I don't know if this is just in American soccer or American sports, but it, you know, the, 
like that freshman mentality of, you know, the freshman has to sit the bench, the freshman has to carry the ball bag, the freshman has to do all the these tasks, and and the freshman probably the craziest one is the freshman is expected to not play, and I, I would say that that's a pretty common, um, that's a that's a pretty common theme across American sports is that the freshman is supposed to sit the bench and and observe whether or not they are good or bad and so like this that that freshman mentality i think is very interesting and i don't i don't i don't know if other cultures have that i haven't i haven't paid close attention to to how they treat like that you know i didn't necessarily have freshmen but you know how they treat the younger player so it's something that i kind of want to make a note to keep an eye on from now on to to see how they how they do that i don't know I don't know if, if you can if you can speak on that at all about the Australian standpoint. Yeah, I mean it's to be to be honest, like because I was coming from a completely different culture, I didn't even really know like you know what the the expectations were, and I just wanted to play. So there was definitely it felt a lot more in the mindset of the other freshman guys that were playing was that they had to kind of bide their time and be a bit more patient. But I, I, def, I didn't get the sense from uh, my team, my older teammates and from my coaches that they thought like that. And, you know, it's it's a different thing, you know, when you're on like road trips, like, you know, the, the freshmen kind of get the the, shit, the shittiest seats or, <laughs> you know, the, the worst beds or things like that, which is, you know, um, it's kind of just like a rite of passage. But in terms of like the coach's perspective, you know, he was just picking the best 11 every game and in terms of my teammates there was never any like bitterness of like oh this guy's you know hasn't done his time he's too young it was more like you know if this guy can come in and and do a job and um you know he works hard it was you know it was kind of another level of it just was more respect that they would they would have for you and i think you know probably the the environment that i had with you know having such supportive teammates um who were older and you know who kind of did protect me and look out for me you know on the field and, you know, were really helpful in terms of just like, you know, giving you that guidance of like what to expect at different away venues and, um, you know, different ways to kind of manage life off the pitch, you know, with the, you know, studying and things like that. Um, you know, that, that was incredibly helpful for me, but you know, every environment's different. I, I still consider myself like incredibly lucky for the friends and the role models that I had when I was playing. But you know, I'm sure there are a lot of teams where you know the older guys give a, a lot of a lot of crap to the to the freshmen, or you know they're not even expected to kind of make the roster, um, you know, which is which is really interesting. And I, I think you know even like you hear about like stories in professional sports, like you know the rookies are always kind of treated the same kind of way off the field or off the court. But then on the court, you know, if they're good enough, they're they're going to play. And you know, if you're if you're a player, you. you you, you want the best guys on the on the, on the park with you, so it's it's never an issue of being jealous because someone you know is younger. Yeah, no, that's the that's the exact thing that I'm that I'm thinking about right now. It's like that even that like a rookie, the rookie starter or the the freshman starter or things like that in American sports, it seems to be you know, not as welcome as other maybe other countries or other sports um, specifically that I that I'm thinking of in my head. Which I'm I'm trying to think of like you know young guys that start for Manchester City, young guys that start for Real Madrid, young guys that start for Barca. Uh, you know I'm thinking of these top 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 level examples, and you know if that were to happen, 
in American sports, like if the, you know, the 16 or 17 year old was to get the starting spot over the 27 or 28 year old veteran, like, I, I, I don't know how that would be received a lot of times, even though we are starting to see a change in, in major league soccer, like just over the weekend, there was a kid, um, that started for, for FC Dallas, who's only like 17 or 18 years old. And, and, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big deal, but that's pretty rare as well. So mm. look, it's, it is, it's a crazy thing. Like from the, I guess the semi-pro team that I was playing at for a few years when I came back to Australia, you see guys come through like some 16, 17 year olds and they just, they just kind of get it. I guess like any high performer in, in any field, you know, you would see they could just, they could just, they just understood the game and technically they were just at a different level and it was like they were never in over their heads the more things you gave them to learn or the more high pressure situations you put in, the more they, they kind of excelled and, and grew and, you know, if you're a good, you want to have a good team, and you know, if you want to be a good coach, these are the kind of players you need to look for and nurture, and not, you know, try to you know put on the bench because they're they're younger or they've got to do their time. I think that's it's pretty ridiculous. I think so too, man. Um, so what? Uh, and this is where I guess I've been trying to lead everything to is that at what point did refereeing become part of your life? Because it sounds like you were a player. And then you, you come over to the United States as a player, you go to college, you have a great experience from, from what I can gather. And then at some point you make this jump to refereeing. So it was refereeing was like a part of when I first started playing. Uh, so I was a teenager, it was like a really, as you know, like it's like a really good way to make money. Uh, the pay was probably as good or better than what I could have got from doing any other part-time job on a weekend, you know, when I was in high school and, you know, if I wanted to be watching football games anyway, I might as well, you know, get paid for it and, and learn a, a, a lot more about the game. And so, you know, that was um, a really interesting, really interesting way to, to view the game. And, you know, it, it, I think it, I think we've spoken about this before, it, it would make a lot of sense, I think, if every player at some stage either did a refereeing course or did some refereeing because it just gives you like a completely different perspective, but then also helps you kind of empathize with the referee that you have and maybe give a hard time because you think that they're, you know, not making the right decision when, you know, it's incredibly difficult to, to be a referee and it's definitely the most thankless job within sports. And then uh, when I was playing again, probably my mid-20s, that was kind of when I was getting it more into tech and startups and, you know, when I sort of had the concept to develop a technology solution that would have an impact for referees um, as well as kind of like the wider footballing community so what's the what's the highest level then you've you've been refereeing i'm curious about that because it sounds like you might have like kind of dabbled in it but never went never went all in yeah well that that was the thing like i it just kind of started off as like a, a bit of a, a thing to do when i was playing and then to the point where you know playing was just taking up too much of my time and commitments and then um, you know, refereeing just kind of had to, you know, just had to kind of give that up. So um, not particularly high, but look, it was something that, you know, you can see why guys kind of go on with it, um, you know, that don't continue with playing because, you know, it gets you, you can get into those higher levels. And, um, you know, I've been lucky, really lucky enough to have met like Mark Lattenberg and Mark Halsey and, um, Sonia Denencourt, like some, you know, ex-FIFA referees who have some ridiculous stories and, you know, they just kind of know all the players 
um, who are, who they say you know are all really actually quite friendly off the pitch, even though it looks like they're giving them all sorts of hell on the field. You know, after the game, you know they they kind of become friends with these players. So it's like a great way to be involved in football and you know kind of get it, get into the higher level and you know you can actually make quite a quite a good career out of it at the top level. Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics are offering you an additional 10% discount just for listening to this episode of the 343 podcast. When I spoke to Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, he mentioned one of the most common problems that coaches and players and teams have when it comes to their training equipment. And this is what he had to say. Finding goals that are portable, um, that can be moved from environment to environment quickly and perform just as well on grass as they do on turf as they do on hardwood or, or wherever you're at. Thankfully, that problem has been solved thanks to the Dynamo goals made by Bounce Athletics. They have revolutionized people's training sessions. For those that don't know, they're a three by five, all aluminum frame. They fold flat in like five seconds and they you pop them back up and a couple seconds. The moment I saw the Dynamo goals in action, I was totally convinced that these were the best goals on the market. And since using the Dynamo goals, I haven't even touched the other goals that I have had for years. And I was curious about who else was already using these. So I asked Zach, and here's what he had to say. Everything from recreational programs that are using them for their 3v3 and 4v4 to college and pro teams that have 20 of them. 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I, I, um, I was recently gifted Graham Pohl's book, um, Seen Red, and I'm like halfway through it right now. And it, it's it's really interesting, that, like the stories, and he, he tells a lot of the stories too about you know talking with the managers before the game or after the game or what it's like to have your name in the newspaper, what it's like to have accusations brought against you, what it's like to give two red cards to the same player in one game. <laughs> we talked about that <laughs> yeah. last time that we talked to. Um, but it, but it's really cool to just, you know, get his get his perspective and, and not only just to get the perspective, but to see how someone can stay involved at the highest level of the sport in a different way. So you don't have to necessarily be a coach or be a trainer or be a player, you know, but to be involved in the sport at the absolute highest level in, a, in just a completely different way than a lot of people imagine is possible because a lot of people wouldn't think of taking that track to get to a World Cup game or to get to a UEFA Champions League final. And and here, you know, is this guy, Graham Pohl, and so many other people as well that have taken the referee track to get there. And and I think that's, you know, quite amazing. And, and it's just, you know, I... I I wish that more people would think a little bit, not necessarily think about getting into refereeing, but think about outside the box if they're if they're not, you know, if they're if they're thinking that their track may be a dead end. Like, you know, how could I turn this into not a dead end? How can I turn this into a different avenue of mm. getting to where I want to be? Is where I kind of always end up going. Well, the, the the thing that really struck me most interesting of being able to kind of hang out with these ex, you know, elite level referees was just. How how first and foremost they were fans of the game, you know. When I was spending some time with with some of these ex English guys in in the US at a couple of training camps, they were doing just kind of observing the way they went about their business. You know, the when we were kind of hanging out and the you know EPL scores were coming through, 
they really weren't analyzing, you know, who was refereeing what games or what big decisions kind of happened initially. It was really like, you know, what's the results? You know, that, you know who, who's doing well? Who's going to make Champions League spots next year? Things like that. They were really primarily fans of the game. And you can kind of see that that passion for the game is what drove them to be able to be successful at the highest level. You know, not so much, yeah, obviously officiating was important, but, you know, kind of keeping a finger on the pulse of what's happening culturally with the game helps a lot. And uh, as we've spoken about before, and as any good referee knows, the the ability to be able to talk to the players, you know, like you, you speak their language and understand the different things that happen culturally from, you know, things that you learn that happen on the pitch that might necessarily be, the way that it's explained in the rule book and, you know, being able to be flexible and be able to be personable and, and be friends with it. You know, the best referees that I can remember having when I was playing were guys that I would happily, you know, have a chat to and have a beer with after a game. And, you know, they, they would just go out of their way to, to kind of be friendly, but they just love the game and they, they want to see, they want to see good games as well. They, you know, that that's what they know that they're not there to be. That's not what all the fans, you know, practice stands for. They just want to be there to help facilitate a good, fair game. And if they never get noticed for the 90 minutes, then that's, you know, that's perfectly fine by them. Yeah, and I think one of the – you hit on something that, that was fresh in my mind just based off of the, the association meeting I went to last night. We had our local association meeting. And um, leaving the meeting, it was just – it was fresh in my mind that a referee has to be very um, – they, they have to be able to, to adapt to whatever environment they're in. And, and that environment can change even within a game itself, like from, from the first minute to the 90th minute, the game can totally change. And, and the way that a referee, um, you know, treats the players or talks to the players or the coaches or whatever, um, it might be different, you know, from the time it started the game to the, to the time it ended. But even more so on a, on a more dramatic scale, you know, when you move from country to country, and I'm thinking specifically about like a Champions League match when you have a referee that referees in Turkey, for instance, and he's refereeing a Spanish team versus an English team, you know, that referee has to be able to adapt to the way that those teams play their games. And that's going to be different than what he might, you know, see in his, in his home league in Turkey. And, and I don't know if referees get enough credit for having that adaptability. And, and I don't know if that is talked about enough either. I think that it's true. Um, I could be wrong, but um, but yeah, I, I just I think that referees don't get enough credit for for that adaptability. Oh, they definitely don't, and it's probably one of the one of the harder things to manage because you know what's what's the right level of praise that a referee should receive after a game? Yep. You know, it's yep. it's it's a lot more of you know if a referee doesn't get there's no articles about a poor decision or there's no contentious decisions then that is kind of like the biggest compliment, I guess, that a, that a referee can have. Yep. But, you know, we're all human and we all want to be recognized when we do great things. So and that's even harder at the grassroots level where, you know, at least you're not going to you know, be in an article in the newspaper or all over the news if you make a bad decision. <laughs> but you're like, you know, just the just I think if culturally it just became – um, and to be fair, like it's it's pretty good in most of the instances that we see that you just should, regardless of what happened in the game, you should just go up to a referee and just shake their hand and say good game after a game. Um, you know, it's it's not a it's not a hard thing to do, but 
it does make a world of difference and you know it definitely may, means more likely that referee will be back next week or they'll be back next season and you know can solve a lot of the issues that we start to see you know proliferating the game globally what were some of the things that you were noticing either as a player or as a referee that you wanted to try to solve with with technology what were what were some of the influences for what what you've created now? But what what were some of the early influences when you were in the idea stage? So initially, we were really working on the hypothesis that if we would have developed a smartwatch for app for a referee to be able to uh, record time and track the match information, which they'd been using a stopwatch, notepad, and a pen for, you know, would they use that? Um, you know, and, and all of our like research and development probably for around a year, year was just kind of talking to referees and referee managers and referee equipment suppliers and things like that, trying to get them to understand, trying to understand this problem a little bit more. And the feedback was very mixed. A lot of people thought that there's no way this process can be replaced by something digital because there, there's quite a lot of variables when you really consider the amount, you know, goals, yellow, red cards, substitutions, you know, for every player on the on the pitch. Um, and so we just went about building like a really simple interface for referees to be able to complete this entire process on a smartwatch. And then with the, the plan to have all of these details that the referees recording would be available in real time for fans. So when you think about any live scoring apps that you have, most of the information that you want to know is the information that is being recorded by a referee. So, you know, we kind of built we built that. Um, we were able to get a FIFA referee to use that in an international game in 2016, and that kind of you know got us a lot of press and publicity. And you know, pretty quickly we had referees using our smartwatch app in you know over 110 countries in you know range of languages that we now offer. I guess as we've kind of the company's grown and progressed. Now we're solving a lot of issues off the park. In ter- well, not off the park, but in terms of trying to keep the referee on the park, I guess you could say. <laughs> so understanding that like referee retention is the by far and away the biggest problem in football, but then also in a you know basically every sports officiating component of a league. And so being able to use different methods of data analytics to be able to help referees um, monitor team behavior to kind of keep their manager in the league alerted in, you know, the way that teams are behaving in a, in a, in a private way to, you know, to help these teams understand what's appropriate and what's not as well. Um, help the referees manage their or re- report their well-being so that, you know, you can kind of keep an eye on that retention data of who's going to be back next season. Um, and then also some performance elements, like you look at the way data analytics has progressed for players, like they can track a crazy amount of different metrics, whereas officiating – like, you know, assessments are still completed on, like, Microsoft Word documents and on pieces of paper and just crazy old-school ways. So uh, we built this really easy-to-use app where assessors can use, you know, like a smartphone or an iPad, um, and then referees can self-assess their performance on a smartphone as well. And, you know, it, what it does is it just builds this database of referee performance um, to track the actual on-field performance, but then... How's the referee feeling? What's their match experience like week to week? You know, what are the correlations with certain teams that seem to be causing issues that, you know, kind of need to need to be need to be spoken to and need to be educated on what's appropriate game day behavior. And I guess that's kind of what we've developed now into a holistic solution for for referees and you know, referee associations to use. 
the referee retention part is is very important to me and important to me again i have something fresh in my mind that like last night at my association meeting i was sitting next to a 16 year old kid and i'm just wondering like how long is this kid going to be able to to survive some of the stuff that you know he's he's already experienced and and i'm thinking back to a match where we had we had a, a, a parent come or actually two parents come out of the stands it was at a high school stadium and and um two parents come out of the stands one parent decides to argue but from a distance only it's kept you know maybe 15 to 20 yards away but one parent got closer close enough to where he he ended up pushing me um two hands on the chest and and just because he was upset with the way that you know the, the game was called I, and I was the assistant referee on the far side at that and um and and so it's like I, I'm thinking back like you know that 16 year old kid that could be a great experience for him that he experienced it at such a young age or it could be devastating you know it's like that that could have crushed him and said I don't want to come back to this at all so the referee retention is re- is really, really really important and knowing a little bit about what you've you've created and and I think you guys have if, if I remember correctly you guys have created kind of like a feedback loop so people mm-hmm. can can you know rate the their experiences and and whatnot. Uh, I, I'm curious how how that came about and how you guys even thought to incorporate this into your your product or your systems. Yeah, well, I guess once we started with the the smartwatch app, that was really more focused on like referees as consumers. So any referee can really like download that and start using it. And, you know, and that's kind of a replacement for their notepad and pen and stopwatch kind of thing. But we wanted to we wanted to work directly with a lot more leagues and every referee manager we spoke to and we've spoken with probably hundreds by this stage had the same you know the same issues coming up retention number one issue pretty close linked to abuse and you know this is I think the crazy thing we all think of refereeing performance as you know it's never never seems to be good enough but. Like here's an analogy that we use in terms of players. Like you know, you think about you want to have the best team um, for your for your club or team, which means that you need to have depth. So you know, you want to have let's say you want to have 16 players, 17 players, or whatever, because you're going to get injuries, and you know, you need competition for positions and things like that. Say if you only had 11 players every week, well, that makes it pretty hard because it means that you really can't afford to have any injuries and you don't have any depth and you know, players can get complacent because they're going. They know they're going to be starting every week. Things like that. Refereeing really, they have about they're playing with seven players every week out of eleven. So many people are leaving and quitting who are probably good enough or at least have the potential to be good, but they they have to get put in situations maybe that they're not ready for. And there's there's really no there's not not much depth at any refereeing association just because retention is such a difficult thing that. Imagine if you have a team of seven players every week. The expect you're going to get beaten every week, and you're not going to improve, and you're going to be not enjoying the experience. What what we can do is, you know, by having more referees, keeping them in the game, like that is just going to first first and foremost be like a talent a talent thing. I think if you know eighty percent of players quit in that first three years, and look, there probably is a lot of players that leave. Because they just decide they don't want to play anymore. That's very different to referees leaving because you know parents giving them a really hard time or or players giving them a really hard time, things like that. They don't get the time to to develop their skills. And you know when you watch youth level games, 
you can see everyone, you know, it's always like quite supportive, you know, if a 10 year old kid misses a goal, you know, no one kind of berates them. Well, some crazy parents might, but you shouldn't do that. And if you were, if you were watching a game and your son or daughter missed a goal and someone else started berating them, you would, you would intervene and be like, Hey, that's not allowed. But the way that people look at officiating is basically that's exactly what happens. These same kids that are just the same level of inexperience, just trying to learn, trying to you know be part of the game. There just seems to be this cultural aspect in a lot of countries where it's because they're doing a job, or you know, and that's probably the most pathetic reason is oh well, you know, they're getting paid, so you know, I have a right to criticise them. It's like well, <laughs> it's kind of hard to understand that. Um, but you know, these are some of the issues that we're working on to solve. Is you know, trying to just keep more referees in and you'll start to see over time if you can if if you can kind of put it into that retention rate that there'll be more experienced referees who have performed better over time and we'll start to see higher levels of refereeing and you know it won't hopefully there'll be a much higher minimization of 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 mistakes and of issues that you know affect these games and detract from the experience for everyone you just kind of touched on a little bit of you know what not not a little bit, but you touched a, a lot on on. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna scrap that entire thought. I'm gonna go with this. Uh, what what has been the most surprising part of all the data that you've collected, uh, when it comes to you know referee abuse, referee um, over overuse? You kind of just you you hit on that too, saying you know referees perform you know, with seven out of eleven players on most weekends. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm just curious, like out of all the data that you that you've collected what what to you is the most shocking the most interesting thing i think on kind of like a macro level so from collecting lots of information and talking to lots of people was that the the serious incidents aren't as big of a reason for referees leaving as what we kind of hypothesize that they would be the biggest reasons are the consistency of the abuse that seems to happen that goes unreported. And that's, I guess, a really, really big focal point of what our products try to address is that you need to do reporting every game because, look, I mean, and it's it's a good thing that there isn't a lot of serious incidents, but a serious incident needs to occur before an incident report or a misconduct report for a league is kind of, you know, required to be submitted. So most of the abuse would fall outside of that and say if there isn't an incident or a misconduct report completed for a team, if they only get one or two a season, there's little recourse for a league to be able to say, you know, to kind of take points away or look to make suspensions or things like that outside of really serious things. And, you know, really serious things is like physical assault. Less serious things, I guess, in the eyes of a lot of leagues is a coach walking up to a referee and verbally berating them at the end of a game. The more consistent abuse, where and look, a lot of uh, another issue as well is some of these incident misconduct reports are incredibly long and arduous. You've got to download a Microsoft Word document or a PDF document, fill it in, send it in, maybe even go to a tribunal hearing. And I guess that barrier is enough for referees to be like, oh, to be honest, I can't be bothered. Like you know, and they'll just they'll just end up quitting. To be able to kind of track that that kind of constant abuse that. You know, basically, you can just apply a rating to a team week to week. 
Like if you've got you look at after ten games, a team's re- received one misconduct report, they might say, "Oh, you know, it was, the referee had a really bad game." We're not usually like that. There's a lot of ways they can kind of get out of that. Whereas if you have a team who's received like a one or a two rating out of five, ten weeks in a row from eight different referees, pretty clearly there's a problem, and you know, there's no more of like, "Oh, it's someone else's problem, not us." It's you know from a range of different opinions that there there is an issue and. Those first instances, I think it's just about education. Probably the, the other most baffling thing from our research is that a lot of teams, coaches and parents actually don't think that what they're doing is bad or, you know, or would even be affecting the referee. They kind of think just, you know, it's, it's always been done. You go to a game, you try to correct the referee's mistakes, like, you know, for whatever reason, like there's just all sorts of like ridiculous reasons that people used to justify it. But people don't actually understand, like the referee hears this stuff. They're not just like a robot running around out there, particularly when they're younger. They're not just a robot running around, you know, doing this game. They're, you know, they've they've got feelings and they've got they they're just there because they they love the game and they they want to be a part of it. And this is a way to be involved. And so I think educating coaches and parents of like, here's what's appropriate, here's what's not. Um, and, and what we spoke about last time, John, when we spoke, you know, going up to a referee and introducing yourself as a coach and shaking their hand at the start of the game does wonders for a referee's confidence. And then they know your name and you know their name and you can communicate in a game. And maybe there's a decision, like look at two quick scenarios, like if you introduce yourself versus if you don't. And then, you know, in the first 10 minutes, there's something happens, you don't understand and you, you know, call out the referee by name they give you a quick clarification and everything's sweet or you don't know their name, you're kind of yelling out ref, ref, and maybe what that ref might seem as a a kind of um, like a challenging way and they ignore you and then that kind of makes you you more aggressive on the sideline and then that kind of compounds over the course of the game. So for us, I guess the best way that – the best things that we see is that little – Little efforts um, do go a long way to, to making things better. And I think that, that you know, it's just a bit of a cultural shift and a, and a, few, a change of a few small details that are going to improve things, you know, for referees. I like that you mentioned the education aspect of it too. And, and you guys are actually doing a very good job of, of you know, of allowing more people to, to access the education. And you guys do that via, you know, articles, written articles and, and your activity on social media and I think that that's brilliant stuff, man. And and I wish that that more people, or I hope that more people decide to to just just take a look at it and and you know don't be afraid because it's you know the referees or you know, don't don't feel like you're you know I don't I don't know like you're you're joining the wrong team because you're you're gonna go learn a little bit more about the referees. Um, not to say that people think that, but um, but what you guys what you guys offer is pretty unique. And I just I wish that or I hope that more people look into it and, and just go and and find out more about the the ways that they impact the game as parents, players, coaches, fans, and and especially in the United States, like today, I don't know, if you just woke up over there, right? So you might might not have seen the news, but there is a, a NBA fan that berated a player and the player decided to to snap back at the at the fan and it just you know created just headline news and and getting you know getting to the point where we don't have that shit is is super important i think so yeah i don't know yeah definitely yeah i did see that it's pretty interesting like you know i think all these 
all these things are interesting. NBA is crazy because the just the players are just and fans are so close to each other and to the point where at least once a game a player kind of you know has a lot of momentum after a shot or a layup and they end up in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a fine line, isn't it? Like you know, even if you don't intend to to kind of offend people or upset people. Um, you know, it's these like you, you saw Russell Westbrook's interview. Like, you know, these guys have feelings and emotions too. And particularly if you're saying things about their families, you know, they're only they're only human. They're not, you know, they're not robots either running around out there. Even though Russell Westbrook moves like he's a robot. <laughs> and it's it's funny, man. Because as I'm as I'm saying this type of stuff, like I I I know that there's going to be people people that are listening to it and, and thinking the same thing. You know, I I have a hard time balancing between being, you know, having thick enough skin to take that shit. And then also, you know, being affected by it. Like, of course it affects you. Um, and then being, and then being a hard ass and, and, and being able to tell players like, Hey, yeah, just, just, you know, tough it out or, or do these, do these things this way. I don't know. It's just, it, it's a, it's hard to balance the, the, the toughness versus the, you know, the realness of, of having that, uh, you know, emotional side to, to every human being. Yeah. And, and I guess that's the hard thing is that everyone is different, but for, for developing great referees, you shouldn't have to have like the wherewithal to be able to deal with all of this stuff, you know, and, and good ones are going to slip through the cracks, you know, and, and that's something that, I guess from working with, we've thought about a lot is I think that the best referees, you know, I think that there's a good percentage of them that never made it to the top because they quit because they thought they sucked when they didn't. And, you know, I don't think you would see that in many other things and particularly, you know, in players, you know, there's obviously you have confidence issues and things like that, but I don't think that players quit too early because, you know, of a, they don't really get abuse until they're, you know, they're at that elite level, whereas for referees, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, in my head, I'm thinking of the example of a player, you know, can miss, uh, you know, a wide open chance in front of the in front of the net. I don't know how many times in their career, and they're going to move on from that, and they're going to be there the next week, the next week, the next week. But you know, a referee can can cannot make that mistake over and over and over again because you know if you make that same mistake twice or three times, then you're yeah you, like you mentioned like you're in the mindset of I'm not good enough so I need to stop doing this because this this is not the level I should be at type type of mentality definitely where uh where can people find more about the not just that not just the app but just you know I mentioned the blog and some of the other stuff that you guys are up to so where can people find out more about you specifically and then uh the the product yeah, so if they want to get in touch with me, my email address is just uh, Simon at RefLive, S-I-M-O-N, um, at RefLive, R-E-F-L-I-V-E dot com. And that's the same with the website as well. It's just RefLive.com and we have our, our blog page on there and we're updating content usually a few times a month and there's a whole bunch of stuff from FIFA referees, um, you know, just kind of do it. Either we just kind of do interviews to analyze it and learn more about their careers, talking to assessors, um, talking to uh, Sonia Denningcourt. So she's one of our contributors. Um, she's a, an ex-FIFA referee and, you know, incredibly, um, incredibly talented referee and, and assessor and observer now. Uh, yeah, we're just looking at this. Oh, we also have some like anti-abuse posters for teams, uh, for leagues to be able to put up around their grounds and things like that. So 
we have a whole bunch of resources. But look, I'm, I'm honestly I'm interested to hear from from any referee managers out there or, or referees who have had any experiences or or you know have learned anything that they think could be helpful for us and our products. Um, you know, don't hesitate to to reach out because we you know we're, we're really big on just kind of learning and and developing you know as much as we possibly can. And the the, the more people we talk to about these things, the the better it gets. Absolutely. Hey, do you have time to answer two more questions? Yeah, sure thing. Okay. Because I, I try to end every interview with the same question, which is what do people need to know? And I, I've i been mistakenly saying I've never had a referee on the show before, but I have. And I just always forget that, that you know, refereeing was a big part of his life because he's also a U.S. soccer board member. Um, but uh, I've never asked anybody f- from a referee standpoint, what do people need to know? So if you had, you know, just the, the one message to get out to everybody in the soccer world, what, what do you think people need to know? I think they need to know that referees are trying to help you have the best game you can possibly have. And you need to think about like your own, if say if you were doing, not just refereeing, if you were doing any job, if you were getting berated whenever you kind of made a decision or, or did something, um, do you think that would make you kind of perform any better? Um, I think just to just to have a little bit of a little bit more empathy, you know, maybe even if if things seem to be getting out of control in a game, and um, you know, whether it's your team or, or your group of of parents or supporters, um, be that person who just kind of quells things. And you know, it's it's one thing, obviously, not to not to be loud and aggressive. That's great, but it's another thing to to talk to the person next to you and. Um, you know, just maybe just just give them a little bit of background about how hard refereeing is, or or you know, tell them a story about when you were a referee, or, or what you know, or, or how hard it really is. And like at the end of the day, ninety nine percent of these instances are happening in non professional, non Champions League, non World Cup games where it really is just a game, and no one's there to win trophies. Or even if they are, you know, these are like youth level amateur games where there's there's much bigger things and you know you can be you can be that hero who just says to someone who's their friend or family you know just just kind of try and call it and, and just think about the environment and the atmosphere for everyone else there beautiful answer sir um all right last question i'd written this down and i wanted to come back to it and and as i was scanning my notes right before um right before i asked that last one i, I wanted to make sure i came back to this because i i don't know if you've ever been able to tell this story to anybody but you mentioned that at one point you you finally got a FIFA referee to use the app for the first time in a in a game, and mm-hmm. the, the, I guess the first question that that popped into my mind was, did you watch the game live as it was happening? And and if so, you know, what was it like to be watching that product being used for the first time on that stage? Okay, so this uh, if we got time, I've got like a little bit of a story about about okay. the game. Yeah, if we've got time, go for it. Um, yeah, well, so we when we first started, I guess before you like start a tech company, you should just do like a lot of research and talking to customers and things like that. And we've done a, a lot of research, and um, it, I guess referees and officials they're they're pretty easy to get a hold of. They don't get kind of inundated with requests, maybe like the, the CEO of a league or, you know, kind of top-level executives. And so really fortunate enough to have had a lot of great support from the state associations in Australia 
and even like the the national the national governing bodies refereeing manager and so I'd had quite a lot of conversations and people were really generous with their time and I guess from doing that R and D process you kind of build these contacts in the industry you know which I kind of didn't realize at the time and I guess we were at the stage of kind of launching the smartwatch app and you know we were like what would be a way that could kind of capture the most amount of attention and really you know help us launch the product and there was a fifa game coming up actually in my hometown and like me and my co-founder were like damn that'd be crazy if we could get it used in this game um you know it'd be like a world first for smartwatch tech world first at fifa level things like that and so just you know from just making a few calls and just um, kind of feeling out how hard it would be and learning who the referees were and things like that. And so we had we got the tick of approval from the refereeing manager. Um, one of the referee, one of the assistant referees, she agreed to use it. And so um, she was just getting to to the game, like you know, like on the morning of the game, and uh, went and met with her and showed her how to use it and everything like that and you know she was really kind of impressed with it and like I was just like crazy nervous you know that I, I barely slept that night before you know just kind of <laughs> picturing all the things that would go wrong and I think that was like we just weren't game enough to have at that stage like a center referee use it because then it could really disrupt the game like say if it affects the timer or something and this is like a nationally televised game so the worst thing in the world is <laughs> like the center referees watch not working and then you know you they have to kind of stop the game and you know figure it out it could kind of kill our company before it really started um and so i guess yeah i met with um sarah was a referee before the game just kind of showing her how to use it and whatever and you know um pretty straightforward it's it's really quite simple which you know needs to be and i just kind of showed her how to set up the game whatever and um she had to keep my phone to be able to kind of pre pre like set up all of the game and so, um, you know, it's about I, – I left her about 45 minutes before kickoff and, you know, went up to the grandstand and was kind of hanging out, like pretty proud of, my, pretty proud of myself, like, damn, this is going to be awesome. And then I think it was like five minutes before kickoff, um, I had my girlfriend's phone with me and it's like ringing from like my number. And I was like, what the hell? And I like answered it and she was like – She's like, oh, I've, she's like, I've broken it. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, I just, I just, I don't know what I've done, but it's just not working. And I was like, oh my God. Like, so I'm like rushing down and I kind of get down to the tunnel and the security guys are like, do you have your pass? And I'm like, no, like I'm working with the referees. Like, you know, probably what sounded like a really <laughs> shady story. And I'm like urgently trying to get through. And then like the referee's assistant came through and gave me a security pass. And I'm like kind of running into the tunnel um, and I get into the change rooms and it's like kind of hectic because it's like two minutes until kickoff and it's kind of like the, the watch has like got this little error that I'd never seen before. I'm just freaking the hell out and then like I'm trying to like kind of re- reset it and reprogram it on the phone and someone's banging on the door like one minute till kickoff and I'm just like, oh my God, like what is happening? Like freaking right out. So I'm just like quickly resetting it and then like, it's taken a couple of minutes and the bang on the door is like every 10 seconds, like, you know, like where it, like, what are you guys doing? Like the game's like about to start. They're trying to walk out onto the park and they can't do that without the referees. And I finally got it like figured out, got to the point of like, all right, it's all, it's all sweet, you know, as, as it would have been. And, uh, you know, I was kind of like dejected, um, you know, so the, the the teams are walking out and whatever, and I, I like recorded the the game at home so I could go home and watch it later. 
And like they're like walking out like five minutes late by the time that I got the watch fixed. And like the commentators are like, it's kind of sort like they're waiting, like kind of like oh, like talking about what the delay was. Like they just didn't know. And like the delay was like I couldn't figure out how to get this watch going. And I'm like kind of dejected at this stage. So I'm like, oh, it's probably going to not work now. And you know, it's gonna it's gonna be a big disaster. But you know, the I remember there was a goal at some stage in the first half, um, and just remember like looking over and watching the referee, like the assistant referee, like you know, enter the information into the watch, and like that was like a pretty special kind of moment because it was like, holy shit, like this is actually this is working. You know, this is like as high a level game as we can really get. Um, you know. This is, and then just kind of catching up with her after the game. She's like, "Yeah, it was awesome. It was so easy. You know, heaps easier than I thought." And I'm like, you know, looking at the match report that it's kind of automated from her, inputting the details on the watch, and just kind of talking to these other international referees who are really like intrigued and like had never seen anything. And so it all worked out, but there was definitely some moments of, of panic um, <laughs> right before the game, and you know, learned some good lessons, and hopefully, and we fix that little error the next week. But, yeah, I guess that was, you know, it was just a combination of just kind of knowing the right people and the timing of the game being there when we're supposed to launch. And, you know, that, that gave us a lot of press and publicity and, you know, helped us get a lot of traction than we otherwise wouldn't have got. It's an amazing story, man. That's that's definitely, a, I think, a more exciting story than a, than a, you know, perfect day, a perfect first day because then now you have something to look back on and you have that story to tell. I think that's amazing. Yeah, definitely. All right, man. Um, anything, uh, anything else that we that you expected to talk about that we didn't get into, or no? I think we've uh, we've done really well. We've covered quite a lot of stuff in there, or so. It's been it's been really good. Um, thanks, thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast and a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas and he's been a member for quite a while and this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review, and I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.